Uh, it's been almost five weeks since we've been here, the, the help and clan minus the Rodriguez section. And four weeks ago or so, we were at a wedding in uh, Arkansas. Alicia Buckholtz, who you might remember from the church, and her beau, Eric Wiley. And then uh, we've been, uh, we were in England for a couple of weeks, too. So I was doing laundry in uh, the Lake District, and I met a really obnoxious Canadian retired teacher. And we have this, you know, passing conversation. And as I leave, he says, tell Toto hi when you get home. I bet you've never heard that before. <laughs> but after two weeks there, we were glad to click our heels and head home. So it is good to be back. You know, one of the things I appreciate about being back is we speak American here. And that's a good thing. Because, you know, if you just speak English, you might not be able to understand the person speaking English. But American, I, I can handle American. Anyway, it is good to be back. You know, if you've been here the last month or so, as we have not, that... You've been hearing a series, four-part series this morning, which will be the last of, called Finding Your Niche. So three weeks ago, Kent Vincent started this series with a message on serving. And the emphasis was finding your niche in the body of Christ through serving. Then two weeks ago, Larry McFall followed with a message on missions and evangelism. The question was, how's your get up and go, I think. And it was finding your niche through serving, uh, through presenting Christ to others, sharing Christ with others, and then also being a part of sharing Christ with others through those who are in other places. Last week, Steve talked about living intentionally in community with each other, finding your niche in relationship with others. And this morning, the last of these four, we're going to talk about finding your niche through what I'm going to call gifts and calling, finding your niche through gifts and calling. Each one of these is meant to help us figure out how God's put us together, where He wants us, and what He wants us doing. And these are, these are huge questions. Most of us deal with sort of an insecurity problem that has to do with where do I fit in and how, how can my life be rich and full. But the needs related to finding your niche go far beyond that because at the end of the day, it's really about how has God put me together and how does he intend to use me? And because finding your niche brings these kinds of issues into play, at the end of the day, it really has to do with how can I live my life well? How can I live this short time I have on the earth well, the way Christ has designed me to do it in the people and the places he wants me to do it with so that at the end of the day I can say, I've laid it down I'm ready to go, Lord. I fulfilled the commission you've given me. That's what we're talking about with finding your niche. You're going to hear some repetition, by the way, this morning as we're sort of wrapping up. You'll hear some of the elements that have been brought up already through the other guys heard again this morning. I, I take it that the repetition is not a problem. If I uh, address any one of you individually and say you have a unique niche to fill, you have a specific gift in the body of Christ that you need to fulfill, you need to be aware of, and responsibilities you need to discharge, uh, most of you would probably give me a yawn and a look of incredulity. And it's sort of like this. You know, most of us think about church. Church is a place we go. It's a place we visit. It's a place we change like hats from time to time. Church is a place we go. 
And I think about church as a place to go to get my needs met. So church is a place I go where other people are going to fill my needs. And Steve talked about this last week. Uh, Unfortunately, um, the church almost always tends to mirror the values of the world it's in. Francis Schaeffer said decades ago, see what the world's doing in 30 years. That's what the church will be doing today. It's probably 5 or 10 years, not 30 anymore. But the church, unfortunately, we tend to buy in as Christians, whether we are conscious of it or not, we buy into the values of the world around us. And so we're a consumer culture and we're a consumer church. So when we think about church, it's oftentimes, probably more often than not, it's in the sense that I'm going to find a place that I can go that will serve my needs. And if it doesn't, I'll switch it like grocery stores and I'll go someplace else. This misses the mark on so many levels, but one key one is this. If it's true that every Christian has been given a gift by Christ, and it is, and we'll look at this in a minute. And if it's true that Christ has called you to discharge that responsibility, that gift, in a particular sphere of influence, and he has, and we'll look at this in a minute too, then if you see church as a consumer only, you are a totally unfaithful person. And you're going to find that out to your regret when you see Christ face to face. You can't live life well or successfully in any eternal significance or way if you don't know what your gift is and what your calling in this life are. So we're talking about finding your niche. That's not unimportant. Every Christian needs to know uh, I'm known by others. I'm loved. I'm accepted. I have a place in the body. That's all good. But you can't afford to see your call in life as merely having other people fill your needs. I came to church on Sunday and I got my emotional tank filled for the week. If you do, that's great. But if that's all you see church as, it's an incredibly deficient point of view. You have a gift and you have a calling. You have a responsibility to discharge to the Lord of the church and a place to do it. And at the end of the day, finding your niche should be about that and nothing less than that. It should include at least that anyway. We need to see ourselves as suppliers, not just consumers. Reagan talked about supply-side economics. The church needs to embrace supply-side economics. Each one of us needs to see ourselves as producing something of value for the benefit of those around us, those people God wants us to share those with. What we have to supply besides grace, truth, and love, which as Christians we should be committed to, to helping everyone with, are the unique spiritual gift, singular or plural, gifts that God has given us. And He's called us to do that with a particular group of people or a particular place. That might change over time, but probably not in the ways we typically or routinely change gears on who we're hanging out with. So every Christian has spiritual gifts and every Christian has a spiritual calling. We'll look at gifts on the front end first. If you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. And I can say this unequivocally because the Scripture is very clear on this. And by the way, even as we start, you guys know this is a huge topic. The passages that that deal with this are huge. The implications are huge. All we're doing this morning is we're just highlighting some of the key elements specifically related to how do I fit in and how should I look at my role and my place in the body of Christ. So we're just very, very lightly highlighting these things. But every Christian has a spiritual gift, at least one. You might have more than one. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has done certain things in your life, and giving you a gift, equipping you with a gift, is one of them. 
You were sealed with the Spirit, you're indwelled with the Spirit, but you're also gifted by the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. The Greek term for this is charismas, and it comes. we get the word charity from it. It's a grace gift. It's a gift from God to you He expects you to use and discharge. Um, these are abilities that God Himself gives you and that you're supposed to turn around and identify and develop and use, and they're the primary means by which you should be serving those around you in the body of Christ. The key passage we'll look at this morning, not in great depth, but at least spend a little bit of time in, is 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are the biggest passage having to do with spiritual gifts, and we'll highlight four things out of this passage. If you have your Bibles, you can certainly turn there. Now, starting at verse 4, and I will sort of hop through this just to highlight the key points I want to make this morning. Starting at verse 4, Paul says, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries or services, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. And by the way, varieties of effects... If you hear three different teachers, you'll get three different effects. Even if they have the same general teaching gift, the effect will differ between them. Verse 7, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith. I won't go through all the lists just now. Down at verse 11, One and the same Spirit works all things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. Even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Skipping down to verse 18, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as He desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. Four points here. The first is this. Each person is given a means of manifesting the Spirit or the life of Christ to others. Each person. So if you noticed at verse 7, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Verse 11 says the same thing again. The Spirit works all these things distributing to each one So every Christian has a spiritual gift because the Holy Spirit has given to each or to every single Christian at least one spiritual gift, a charisma, a spiritual enablement for you to serve others. There is no Christian that doesn't have a spiritual gift. The second point is this. The Holy Spirit gave you the gift or gifts as He saw fit. You didn't choose your gifts. You were given your gifts by God Himself. So if you look at verse 11 again, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. The Holy Spirit decides what gifts you get. You don't. I don't. Verse 18, God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as He desired. If If you're tempted to look on with envy on someone who has a gift you wish you had, or if you're tempted to be proud because of the gift you have, they're both totally wrong-headed. If God gives the gift, then I have nothing to boast about, right? If it's a gift that I think is highly valuable, and I say, I pat myself on the back, 
it's misplaced. I didn't get the gift. I didn't earn the gift. God gave it. So I have nothing to boast in. The flip side of that, though, too, is I should not look with envy on other people who have a gift that I think otherwise I want. That's the gift I wanted, Lord, and you didn't give it to me. If God is good, and he is, and if he loves us, and he does, and if he's all wise, and he is, then the gift you and I have is the perfect gift for us. So pride has no place in your spiritual gift, and envy has no place in your spiritual gift. What you have or what you don't have. God gives the gifts as he sees fit. We receive what he gave. We don't choose this. This is humbling, by the way. It puts us in our place. We receive what God has given. The third thing is this. Because these gifts are from the Holy Spirit, they are all supernatural. Let me tell you one of the implications for this. Many of you in here aren't old enough to remember this. Some of you are. Uh, If you were a Christian, let's say in the 70s and 80s, there was lots of a sort of back and forth acrimony and division related to what was called charismatics. And you hear almost nothing about this today. It's kind of like passe. But back then there was all this acrimony about, are these spiritual gifts for today or not? Uh, Do people really still get this ability from God or do they not? And if they do, is it really supposed to look like that or sound like that or what? Part of the argument, part of the fury around this was totally misguided, though, because part of the thinking went like this. The miraculous gifts, they were limited to a certain group of people in a certain time and place. But the petty gifts, or the insignificant ones, they're for all of us for all time. Do you see the problem with that? If the gifts are from the Holy Spirit, they are inherently supernatural. And the effect of the gift is supernatural. So this is true no less of someone whose gift is showing mercy than it is someone whose gift was a miracle. You see, the source is the same. The effect is the same. Not specifically or particularly, but supernatural gift, supernatural origin, and supernatural effect. So it won't do on this level either to say some gifts are more important than others. No, they're all important because they're all from the same source. They're all portions, if you will, Of God giving his body gifts so it all works together the way he wants it to. All gifts, if they're a spiritual gift, they are supernatural. They have a supernatural origin. They have a supernatural effect. Along with this, your spiritual gift may or may not have anything to do with your natural abilities. If you, let's say you know someone who is a brilliant academic, really smart, and they become a Christian, you might be tempted to assume that God has made them a teacher, and you might be entirely wrong. God may or may not use the brilliant mind through regeneration to make them a teacher. He may or may not. That brilliant academic might be gifted as a servant, that his his spiritual gift is serving, not teaching. Or you might have someone who didn't excel well at school at all, that God makes a teacher, that has a simple means of delivering the truth. So your natural abilities may be tied to your spiritual gifts, or they may not be tied to your spiritual gifts. They don't determine that. When you get a new birth, you get a new set of abilities, these spiritual gifts. They may or may not be tied to your own natural abilities. Just as the fourth point is this, just as the various parts of the human body are unique and essential, so is every gift the Holy Spirit chose to give each of us. Verse 19 says, if they were all one member, 
where would the body be? You know, oftentimes we find some sense of security if we look like someone else, if our gift is like someone else, but that would defeat the whole purpose of this diversity of gifts. If you notice in the 1 Corinthians 12 passage, there's all these talks about each and every, but one whole body. There's diversity and unity, and that's the only way bodies work well. So there has to be diversity. Your gift, even if it doesn't look like anyone else's around you, it's necessary because it's not like everyone else's. God doesn't mean us all to look the same at all. So we have a responsibility to Christ and to the church to discover, to develop, and to use our gift so that others can grow and be helped as God wants them to. And by the way, that is the role of your gift. If, you're, if you are operating in the area God's gifted you to, you will probably feel a certain sense of joy or satisfaction. You should be passionate about your area of gift. You should have a, a level of enthusiasm about it. But the, at the end of the day, your gift is meant to help other people, to serve others. So you are responsible, because you've been given a gift, you're responsible to use it so that others can grow up as God wants them to. And you'll not only find your niche, your satisfaction and your joy, but you'll strengthen the church of Jesus Christ at the same time. I'm going to roll through the four key passages. Do you all have your handouts, by the way? Do you have them? Okay. <clears throat> you can write in as you, as you care to here. I'm just going to go through the lists. I'm just going to list the gifts that are mentioned in each of these passages. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. These are the gifts that are listed. The word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues, apostles, teachers, helps, and administrations. In Romans 12, verses 4 through 8, this is the list of gifts given. Service, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading, and mercy. In Ephesians 4, 7 through 16, these are the gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. By the way, these are seen as foundational gifts, the gifts that allow the rest of the gifts in the body to operate as they should. And then last, in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, it lists simply speaking and serving, probably just saying in general, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Now, none of these lists are the same. Some are long and some are very short. And the gist of this is this. None of these, we assume, are meant to be exhaustive. If you think that you have a gift, let's say, in uh, music, in helping people worship, and you look through these lists and you say, well, it's not there. The gift of uh, worship is not there. Uh, that's not a problem because none of these lists are understood to be exhaustive. They're descriptive and they say some of the ways God gifts people in the body of Christ to serve others, but it's certainly not intended to be all of them. So... The lists aren't exhaustive. You may have a gift that doesn't fit neatly into one of these boxes, and that's okay. Uh, every gift, whatever your gift is, it's vital to the church, and you need to know what it is and use it. Your handout has on it a website link. And if you want to, I, I scoured online a little bit. I really didn't want to print out 100 or 80 or whatever 26-page inventory uh, tests. If you want to, you can go to this website. You can download the test. I think you might be able to take it online also. It's 26 pages. Some of it's the test. Some of it's just description and information. But it helps you just answer a number of questions. 
And at the end of the the test, when you've answered all those questions, it'll show that you rate high in certain areas of interest and that perhaps your gift is teaching or serving or mercy or exhortation or missions or whatever. But it is a way to think about this. And because you need to identify this, I'll bet uh, bet 20%, no more than 20% in this room could tell you what their spiritual gift is. That would be normal. Um, No more than 20%. And ask yourself, if, if the church is operating on 20%, what would it look like on 50% or 80% or 100%? If you don't know what your gift is, you're probably not using it. So you need to identify it. One of the ways is the inventory test. You can go online, download that, print it off, whatever. Check that out. They're helpful. They tend to confirm, though, probably what you already know or others might know about you. They generally don't zap you and suddenly discover something entirely new. But they do help to confirm. The other thing is, do, do your own inventory. What do you love to do? Thinking about serving others. What do you love to do? What gets you excited? Sometimes, too, ask yourself, what kind of people do I like to hang out with? Oftentimes you'll find that you like to hang out with people who either have the same kind of gift you have because it encourages you in your own gift, Or you may find that you like to hang out with the people that need your gift. But either way, that can be an indication of how God's put you together, what your spiritual gift is. The other thing you can do is ask other people, what do you see as my strength, my niche, my spiritual gift? Do you think it's A or B or or something entirely different? But it's important that you identify your gift so you can use it. It's important for the body of Christ. If you want to find your niche, I can think of no better way, and it wouldn't matter where you're at, than identifying your spiritual gift, plugging in, and using it. And once you discover your gift, uh, you need to keep at it. Uh, You need to plug away at it. Uh, When Paul wrote his young protege, Timothy, in both letters, this is interesting to me, he tells him something about keep going in your gift. So in 1 Timothy 4, 14, Paul has to tell this young guy, don't neglect your gift. And when he writes him his last epistle that he writes, 2 Timothy 1.6, he says this, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. He says, Tim, your spiritual gifts, leadership and teaching, they're like a fire that you've let burn down to coal and ashes. And you've got to get back in the game. And you've got to fan that to flame again. You've got to get it going again. You can't afford. You can't afford and others can't afford for you to let that thing lay there dormant. You've got to keep going with your gift. So, we've got to come to grips with the fact that Christ has called us to His call and He's gifted and equipped us for that call. And no gift is superfluous or unnecessary. They are all needed. Your gift is needed. You have a gift. Find your niche. Strengthen Christ's church by using your gift. Not only do you have a gift, but you have a calling. This might, uh, I don't know if this will sound odd to you or not, what, I, uh, what I'm going to share on calling. Um, I'll defend it biblically, you look it up, and if you disagree, you, you let me know, okay? Um, I would argue that not only has God given you specifically a gift, a spiritual gift, singular or plural, but that He specifically means for you to exercise or discharge that responsibility in a particular place, to particular people. That God not only give you, has given you a gift, 
But he wants your gift, he wants you plugged in with that gift in a particular place with particular people. Acts 15, 7, uh, the early church, the Jewish Christians, they didn't know what to do with the Gentiles. Should they become Jews? Should they become circumcised? Do they need to keep the law? What do we do with these guys? They didn't know. So in Acts 15, the church at Jerusalem has got to come to grips with this in some meaningful way because they've got to write a letter to the Gentile Christians and say, this is okay, this isn't. And during this process at verse 7, it says, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter says, by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Pete says, God chose him to share the gospel with others versus others. There were other apostles, there were other evangelists, and yet this is what it came down to. I was chosen to share the gospel. Later in Galatians 2, verses 7 through 9, Paul writes this. He talks about his own history and his interaction with the early church as, as he went from the guy that had persecuted the church to now he's a Christian and he's sharing Christ with others. And he says this, Seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, <clears throat> excuse me, that is to the Jews. Later, of course, in his ministry, Pete's role is he talks to the Gentiles early there in the early chapters of Acts. But after that, he's understood to be the key apostle to the Jews. And Paul's understood to be the key apostle to the Gentiles. And so Paul says here in Galatians, I was entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, there were other evangelists and other apostles. But Paul says, I was the one God chose primarily to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So the early church understood Peter was the chosen vessel initially to introduce the gospel to the Gentiles. But then the rest of his ministry, he was called to the Jews. Paul was called as the key apostle long-term to the Gentiles. And it's just said that both of them had a calling. Paul would have been out of the sphere of the influence God wanted for him if he had stayed in Jerusalem and Judea. He wouldn't have been serving the people God had called him to serve. Each one of them had the sphere God had called them to. And the last passage on this is 2 Corinthians 10. Uh, just read verse 13 there. Um, this is, a, Paul started the church at Corinth, but they always had a tough, they didn't respect him. So he always had to defend himself so that they would appreciate the truth he had to share so that they could grow. In 2 Corinthians 10, when he talks about his ministry and the fact that God wanted him speaking to the Corinthians and helping them, he says this, We won't boast beyond measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. All these are, are measurement words in the Greek. A measure, a sphere, and God apportioned. So Paul says, you're part of our ministry because you're the people and you're the place God called us to serve. Our ministry, it's as if we took, if you take yourself in the middle and you draw a compass, you have a sphere of influence that God wants you to be using 
your gifts in. Paul said to the Corinthians, you're part of my area of responsibility. I've been called to reach even as far as you. My sphere of influence, the people whom I am responsible for include you. And you and I have a sphere of influence also. We not only have a gift, but we have a call from God to use that in particular places and particular people. Um, this sounds, uh, I say God's given you the gift, he chose the gift you didn't, and then you say, and God chose the place and the people he wants you to, to use that with. It might sound restrictive. It's actually not. It should be liberating. And if you think about it this way too, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul calls the church a body. And you know he says all the parts of the body are necessary. So imagine, if you will, if... You've got all the body parts, but um, the ear is on the knee, or the toes are in the nose, or whatever. You'd have not only a, a smelly, a stinky situation, but you'd have, you'd have a body that wouldn't work, right? So you say not only do you have to have all these functional parts, but they've got to be in relationship with each other in a way that they all work together. So if you say God has gifted us in a particular way and called us to a particular place and people, it makes sense. It's organized the way God is. It makes sense. It lets the body work the way God wants it to. Where you live and where you go to church, the people you rub shoulders with, this is important stuff. And it's something that you should prayerfully consider. If you're not convinced... I've said this in, in a small church, and I've said it in a very big church. If you're not convinced you're where God wants you, you've you got to pray and figure it out, and you've got to get where God wants you. The, si- it, it's not, the size doesn't matter, and the, even the geography doesn't matter. You need a sense of calling. And especially you need a sense of calling for this reason. You know we're really carnal and immature, most of us. We're, just, we're still the puking, mewling babies we've talked about months ago. And you know what that means? It means that when I plug into a group and I get offended, what do I do? I pick up my marbles and I go someplace else. Right? And most of us, we change churches and groups like ice cream. We're consumers. I don't like the way you talk to me. You offended me. This church hasn't met my needs. I'm moving on. See, you know what? If you believe God's called you to the people and the places you are, you can't do that. You're not free to. You're not at liberty to. You've got you to gotta stick it out. You've got to forgive. Gosh, you've got to obey the Bible. You've got to forgive somebody that's, that's harmed you in order to keep going. And you've got to grow up and stick it out. But if you want to remain an immature person, you'll just keep rolling down the line. And you know what? You won't fulfill God's call and God's commission on your life. You won't. We've got, we need this sense that we're gifted in a particular way and that we're called to a particular place or to a particular group of people. I'm not saying that call, that place of call or that group that you identify with will never change in your life. I mean, clearly. It's just that we change it more often, I'm sure, than God means us to. And if we're called, then we're not free to pick up our marbles and go away. We've got to stick it out. We've got to find a way to make it work. And keep going. And only if you're willing to do that can you fulfill Christ's commission on your life. You can't otherwise. 
We're just too carnal and too immature. I'm going to close with this illustration. Uh, A week ago last Friday, uh, we were in London, and it was this glorious sunny day. It was just gorgeous. It was like, I think the weekend Stan was saying you guys have had here, it was just perfect weather. So there were only a couple places I cared about seeing in London. One was St. Paul's Cathedral, and one was Trafalgar Square. So we could go Friday. We are we are basking in the sun at Trafalgar Square, and I had no idea how many people would be there. It is it's not elbow to elbow, but there it's a huge area, and there are people everywhere, and most of them are tourists like us, and everybody's sitting down and milling about and just having a good time. The place we chose to sit in the sun and enjoy was on this large pedestal, um, this base, the stone base. You kind of got to hop up to get there. And on top of the base of this pedestal is this column. It's huge. It rises 151 feet in the air. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? And on the top of the column is an 18-foot tall statue of a little man, Horatio Nelson. It's called Trafalgar Square after his battle. And it's Nelson's monument. And Nelson in life, he was, he's a tiny guy. I mean, almost midget. And yet he was this titan in British history. You know, the Brits love to honor their heroes. And uh, Nelson's about as, as good as it gets. Uh, Nelson's up there with Churchill and Wellington. There's sort of about three up there. He's there, and he's got this tremendous monument. And on the monument towards the base, there's four friezes, one on each side. They're made from the bronze of the cannon that were captured in these four famous battles of his. And then on the, off the corners, there are these huge bronze lions that the tourists like to climb on and take pictures of. And yes, we took our pictures in front of those lions too. Uh, Nelson is one of my heroes, and one of those scenes is from the Battle of Trafalgar. This was the last battle of his life. He had four huge victories. This was the last, and he was mortally wounded in this battle. If you read about Nelson's life, the guy certainly had feet of clay like we all do. Uh, he was unfaithful to his wife. There were some kind of atrocities. I didn't, didn't bother reading all, all about it. After one of his uh, victories, the way they treated the enemy was unconscionable. But at the end of his life, he was sterling. And during his reign in the British uh, Navy, there was another little, little guy, another little titan across the strait there who thought he was called to rule the world. Mr. Napoleon. And Horatio Nelson was given the task basically of stopping Napoleon. The French had allied with the Spanish. And when Nelson is swimming down the coast there of Spain, he sees the combined force of the Spanish and the French navies. And the Brits are far outnumbered. And Nelson knows. He's convinced they can win. But listen to this. When the enemy is seen... Nelson goes down to his stateroom and he writes the last prayer of his life. And this is what he writes. May the great God whom I worship grant to my country and for the benefit of Europe in general a great and glorious victory. And may no misconduct in anyone tarnish it. And may humanity after victory be the predominant feature in the British fleet. For myself individually I commit my life to him who made me. And may his blessing light upon my endeavors for serving my country faithfully. To him I resign myself 
and the just cause which is entrusted to me to defend. Amen, amen, amen. Uh, He's facing the battle. They're far outnumbered. He knows this may be the end of his life, but you see what he's praying for. Uh, My endeavors to serve my country faithfully, and I resign myself to God. Now, after he wrote this prayer, he came up onto the deck of the ship, and he told his flagman this. Of course, he's in the flagship. Uh, Flag the the British fleet this message. England expects that every man will do his duty. England expects that every man will do his duty. These guys were in the British Navy. They were called and they were commissioned with a task to defend the nation. And really the future of Europe hung on this battle. And so Nelson says, you tell those guys, you remind them, Sorry, I practiced this enough I thought I'd get through without this. Uh, England expects you to do your duty. You're called, you're commissioned, now stand up and do the job. Nelson was shot by a French sniper, just they said 50 feet away. And the bullet went through his shoulder, went through a lung and lodged in his spine. He knew he was dying. And he has the guys take him down below to a stateroom again. It takes him about three hours to bleed out and die. But his last recorded words were these. He said, thank God I have done my duty. Thank God I have done my duty. And then he said, God and country. How do you like that for an end? Thank God I have done my duty. See, I'm afraid this. Most of us, we're like the halpins on vacation. We're just kicking around. We think we're here to have a good time. We're AWOL. We've been called and commissioned. And it's not a vacation. It's a war we're in. God help us that at the end of our life, we can say with Nelson, thank God I have done my duty. I love that. To finish well. You and I can't finish well if we're not living well. If you don't know how God wants to use you and where he's called you, you can't live well. You can't die well. You've got to know these things. You've got to plug in. You've got to be engaged in the cause of Christ in this very short time on the earth he's given us. Wouldn't you love to be able to say at the end, thank God. I've done my duty. I have no regrets. Thank God I've done my duty for others. We could do with a few more of the Horatio Nelsons, I think. But if you figure out, God, this is what you've gifted me with. God, this is your call on my life. That's the beginning of a successful life. You can do this. And you can do it with other people struggling to do the same thing. And you can lay your life down at the end and say, thank God. And then, you know, if you do that, then what the Lord gets to say to you is, well done. And wouldn't you love to hear that too? You know, the thing that strikes me, you go through Britain, there's all these monuments. Guess what? Those guys with those monuments, they never got a single benefit from them. Nelson, he never saw that statue. He doesn't know that people sit at his feet today. What? 200 years later. He doesn't know. There's no benefit. You fulfill your gift and calling by Christ. You get home to heaven. He says, well done. And he honors you. And he rewards you. 
I don't know if it's pedestals and stuff. I don't know what it'll be like. But it'll be worth it. Live well and die well. If you want to find your niche and you want to find the purposes for which Christ has gifted you and called you, do what Kent did. Give yourself to serve others as Christ the servant leader for all of us did. Or commit yourself to share Christ with those around you as Larry enjoined us. And support and be a part of, be knit in with other people who are doing the same in other parts of the country or the world that we won't be able to. And make a commitment to live in community with others. Yes, put up with each other. Yes, forgive each other. Yes, be willing to go on again and again. And determine to find out your gift and pray to God about His call on your life. Lord, where do you want me to discharge my role in your body, in your cause on the earth? Where is that? Lord, show me where you want me to be. Show me what you want me to be doing. Lord, I love uh, Nelson's story. Um, Stature was not an issue related to the uh, contribution he made to his country and really, Lord, to the freedom to continue to preach the gospel both in the British Empire and around the world. Lord, we may not be Nelsons and columns and monuments may not be erected in our honor. Lord, the truth is we've got greater honors, greater calls, higher calls from you. Lord, help us to be unsatisfied with anything less than knowing what gift you've given us to use and knowing the place and the peoples and the times you mean us to discharge those responsibilities. God, help us refuse to walk away from the battle lines or to detach ourselves from the rest of the body. Lord, but give us a a willingness and give us a sense of duty to fulfill our call and our commission in your great cause. In Jesus' name, amen.